Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Independence Day and Independence Day Resurgence. You know what? We've all seen this trailer. It's dark, it's generic, it's boring, it's exactly like Prometheus and Transformers. It's I'm not even going to bore you with it. It's it's all visual. There's just a bunch of people, oh my god, and then some stuff happens. It's, 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 you know what? How about the honest trailer for the original Independence Day instead? That way we can all have some laughs. This July 4th, revisit the movie that made blowing up American landmarks cool. Until 9-11. Independence Day. Featuring the premise from War of the Worlds, the aliens from Alien, the spaceships from V, the dogfights from Star Wars, the Statue of Liberty from Planet of the Apes, and the Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. Must go faster. Must go faster. Must go faster. Prepare to stand up and cheer as they defeat an advanced alien race with a sheet. Morse code. Punching. Welcome to Earth. An Apple PowerBook 5300. And Cousin Eddie. Travel back to a time when summer blockbusters were fun and uplifting. Didn't I promise you fireworks? Yeah. Not dark and nolan-y. Where's the trigger? Where is it? Where is it? In a movie that will trigger more 90s nostalgia than the front page of BuzzFeed. Featuring R.E.M. CD-ROMs. What the hell is that? Data. The last 24 hours have been really exciting. And Fruitopia. Witness a film whose message of global unity means only America can save the world. It's from the Americans. They want to organize a counter-offensive. It's about bloody time. What do they plan to do? And drill at explosive action that casually murders millions of people, but won't hurt this dog. Starring Jaden's dad, President Lone Star, President Laura Roslin, Apple Genius, Crazy Dennis Quaid, Michael Buble Jr., not Jaden, Nerdy Fabio, her, Vivica, not actually a fox, and the best extra ever. Can someone explain to me how they've already made three Chronicles of Riddick movies, and yet I still have to wait until 2015 for a sequel to this? Uh, <laughs> oh, I can tell you right now, it was not worth the wait, sir. Independence Day. Okay, so we're going to do things a little bit differently today. Um, rather than communicating over Skype, Sharon and I are now sat in the same room over the same Yeti mic. And we attempted this before over Contact and Star Trek the motion picture. Remember those podcasts? Mm. Nope, they never came out. No. That descended into absolute farce. It went horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, I think, um, <laughs> I don't know what happened, but, but that was not a good review. So we'll see if this happens again. Um, and maybe it's different because I'm going to be telling Sharon a story because we've both seen the original Independence Day. I've seen it twice in the past uh, two days. And uh, I've seen Independence Day Resurgence, but Sharon hasn't, so I can tell her all about it. Um, and I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> so I went out to see this at the cinema, the first one, yesterday uh, night. They were having it at the Odeon as a sort of a, 
a sort of a preview screening. Um, and uh, you watched it at home on DVD. I did, yes. So one of us was whelmed. The other one of us, I think, quite liked it. So, uh, okay, right. Should we start with the bad for Independence Day 1? Because then when I give the good for Independence Day 1, I'm then going to just flip-flop around to explain the good for Independence Day Resurgence and then the bad for Independence Day Resurgence. So it's a, it's a, it's a good sandwich with bad bread. It's an up and then a down. <laughs> yeah, if you will. Okay. So bad stuff about Independence Day 1. Well, I presume that we'll both be talking about the bad stuff for... That's what I mean. We start Depend- low, it sounds like you, go up. It sounds like that there are more things you don't like about the first one than, than I do. Um, oh, by the way, folks, maybe before you carry on listening to us, check out Bob Chipman's Really That Good on Independence Day. It persuaded me to see more in the film. And I was already starting to warm to it, but then he just, you know, knocked it out of the park and it was like, oh, okay... There's a lot more going on in this film than we give it credit for. And it's a really well-produced 33-minute video. He says it better than we could, frankly. And and whatever we have to say about it would be plagiarising him. So we will at least cite him when he says something that we hadn't thought of otherwise. Mm, Indeed. I think that that watching that after I saw it yesterday had an impact on on how I felt about the movie as well. Um, Because a lot of the the criticisms that I had were not even... Not really criticisms. It As a whole... Uh, I, it's it's a very competent film. It sells the world. It sells the story. The performances are great. The casting's fantastic. Um, Looks great on Blu-ray, by the way. When I came out of the cinema today, I went and picked it up immediately on Blu-ray. Um, for reasons I'll explain in a second. Mm. And it looks better on Blu-ray than it did on the cinema screen last night because they were just using an old print. <laughs> See, but this I... one's been fully polished up. This... Yeah. Now, be- I think because I saw it um, standard definition, not that I'm saying that this usually has a, a massive impact on how I uh, judge a film, but the first thing that hit me was it looked so painfully 90s it okay, that doesn't really change did. with the blu-ray unfortunately not but um but no the fact that everything was kind of a, you know a little bit hazy and a little bit fuzzy and looked like it had been stuck together with um mm. packing tape um, this was pre-hd so indeed. just it's it's been polished up but yeah. um i mean we can't obviously the, the blu-ray can't do anything about the costumes or the lighting i mean the, the difference between the lighting of these two films is astonishing if you saw them side by side, playing the whole way through, you'd be like, wow, this, and then there's this, and then there's this. Mm. Um, Is Resurgence directed by yeah, Roland Emmerich? Emmerich. Okay. Yeah. Um, Same director. All right, okay, that's fair. Different cinematographer. In, I mean, in terms of in terms of the bad, because the the whole you know it looks terribly nineties thing is not automatically a bad, but it... no. I mean, uh, Empire Records, one of our favourite films, Absolutely. looks terribly nineties, yes. sounds terribly nineties, indeed, is terribly nineties, is incredibly nineties, and is obviously stuck very firmly in that decade. Maybe the most nineties movie, um, <laughs> apart from possibly so Primary Colours, a this... film about Bill Clinton. But watching Independence Day, it kind of felt like watching an alternative history movie about what would have happened if aliens had invaded in the 90s <laughs> yes and when you're watching resurgence it's like that was the alternative history and now and i will say like um this is going to have spoilers for resurgence just sort of peppered throughout so if you really don't want to know anything about resurgence then um we'll go and see it first and then come back or or don't go and see it first because it's rubbish <laughs> don't waste your money on seeing independence day resurgence 
buy the Blu-ray of Independence Day. Simple as that. Or if you don't like hard copy, buy the HD digital download from wherever your service is. Do we need to bother with the bad for resurgence now, or have you got? Is there more? Oh God, there's so much. Okay. Oh, right. there's so much. Okay. Well, we'll. we'll I got get all to that sorts then. of goodies for you, <laughs> or baddies. But the the um, I think for for the original Independence Day, a lot of what failed to grab me about it, watching it again this time, um, and it was very similar to a lot of the stuff, the uh, issues that I had with it when I first saw it back in the nineties. And on subsequent viewings. And actually, you're absolutely right to direct people to to Bob Chipman's video because he addresses a lot of the issues that I have with it. Um, The characters are, in terms of their presentation, they are kind of stereotypical broad brushstrokes. Here's the nerd. Here's the jock. (laughs) Here's the president. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, though, when you... No, actually, I'm focusing on the bad. We'll, We'll get to the good in a minute. Um, so that yeah, the characters are sort of leaning towards the stereotypical, and there's only so much that you can do to not have that be the case. Um, the the issues that I have always had with the character arc for uh, Bill Pullman's president, um, they're still there. It ultimately he he starts off being um, kind of this very considered and calm world leader who wants to get all the facts and doesn't want to make any sudden decisions he you know that he hears about this thing and they don't know what it is yet he doesn't want to go with the idea of let's blow it all to hell before we really know what's going on his constant concern is you know if we use uh, explosives or something like that there's going to be a, a collateral damage of the american people which he doesn't want to go for um but basically the way the story plays out is kind of proving him wrong you know and this calm considered measured approach hmm. is demonstrated to be flawed and and doesn't work in this particular instance no they're at war it's a wartime yeah. scenario there is no negotiation exactly. he asks for peace but because but there could be no peace. But here's the thing, and we talked about this last night in terms of how this compares and contrasts with War of the Worlds, which obviously um, the the structure of the story is based on, and, and certainly the resolution is based on. War of the Worlds is a very long, drawn out process. You know, the the you get the hints of the aliens, and then they turn up, and then they take over the planet, and then it, it carries on for quite a long time before the humans actually kick back. Mm-hmm. This happens within two days. Yeah, the whole thing... This is Roland Emmerich likes things that start and finish really quickly. So the day after tomorrow is all of our climate change nightmares happening within a half week. Mm. And then everyone... You know, people who... Everyone who's not dead is like, well, I guess we'll just move to the equator at the end. That's it. That's the day after tomorrow. Um, and 2012. It's, you know, the, the entire world ends, but pretty quickly. And then we're <laughs> on a boat at the end. But, but part of the issue with having these, um, these disaster-type movies happen so quickly is that when you're dealing with the kind of scale mm. that Emmerich seems to insist on dealing with, mm. you kind of you ha- really have to suspend your disbelief for the mop-up operation that must go on afterwards. Yeah. I mean, you look at something like um, something where you've got a disaster which does happen relatively quickly, like uh, Titanic, for example. It's very small scale. Ultimately, that was a, that's a dramatic and terrible occurrence for everybody on that boat and everybody who is connected with anybody on that boat. Yeah. But in terms of global knock-on impact... 
Not so much. But this, it's like you you don't have any. Uh, you well, don't... it signified the end of the Romantic Age of steamships. Yeah, absolutely. But but again, that's a, a long. You're looking at long drawn out impact there. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I think part of what felt a little bit jarring about Independence Day was it all rolls up really quick. The bad stuff happens. They sort it. They solve it. And then the bad stuff is really bad, on. and then the good stuff at the end is really it's good. Really There's good. no shades of grey. It's all, it's all just like, it's either great or terrible. Yeah, but you've still got, and now I'm jumping to the end here, but you've still got those little uh, cutscenes where it goes to, to various countries around the world, um, which all I All high-fiving each other. Yeah, all high-fiving <laughs> each other. I believe they go to um, somewhere in Africa. Where there are, there are tribesmen with spears running around. Yeah, going, oh my God, they downed the spaceship. Excuse me? Cultural reference. References. Um, the um, they go to Egypt and then they go to Australia and you know it's Australia. You know it's Sydney, in fact, because they make sure that they get the opera house in there. All of these locations, it's broad daylight. There's no concept of relative time difference. Everyone's at American time, obligingly. Every, apparently, yeah. Everybody's on Eastern Central. Um, there's um, uh, these these. 50, uh, what was it? 15 oh, No, miles? it'd be Pacific time because they're mostly in California, uh, California and the Mojave Desert. Okay. And Area okay. 51, the Tatooine of the Independence Day <laughs> universe because it comes back in the resurgence. Indeed. Um, but you've got these 15 mile across spaceships that have apparently landed in all conveniently completely unpopulated areas. Well, thank God they didn't land on anyone. The the initial concern, we can't simply blow this thing up because you then just turn one falling object into a lot of small falling objects and you can't possibly control where they're going to land and who they're going to kill. How does how has that changed by the end of the movie? I, I just I was sat there looking at this downed spacecraft thinking how many dead people are under that? Lots. It's bad. There's yeah. lots of them. Um, but uh, but yeah, going back to, to Bill Pullman's arc as the president, he, he kind of... Things happen. There's a my dead family moment. My dead family! And he basically goes from, we can't just blow it up, we need to think about this, to, fuck it. He goes Newcomb before his family, his wife dies. Mm. And then after that, he gets in a fighter jet. Well, it's because the plan changes and he goes, okay, yeah, good plan. I'll get in a jet and fly. Yeah. Thereby demonstrating how unsuited he is to being the president. Bonnie Hunt says to um, Jeff Goldblum, I don't understand why it's you who has to fly up into space. No one says to the president, I don't understand why it's you who has to fly out with the fighters. Well, they do kind of. Is his? Um, uh, I'm not sure whether it's his, his head of the armies or, or the, the. Are we general. talking Robert Lozier? Robert Lozier. Robert kind Lozier. Of, he says to him that he's going up on the, in a plane. I'm a pilot. It's what I do, or words to that effect. And Robert Lozier kind of looks at him, and there's this moment of, yes, I understand. I'm a military man too. You go on, sir. He didn't, you know, no words have to be exchanged. There's just this very masculine kind of air of, of mm. yeah, clap on the gotta back. Got to do what you got to do. Got to do what you got to do. Very kind of cowardly. No, you're the president. You need to be somewhere giving orders. Move your drink elsewhere. You're flailing your arms Sorry. about. You're going to spill it all over my computer. There um, you go. Yeah, so uh, that whole element was a little bit... Yeah, it was a lot. A lot. Um, 
it's, it feel uh, to English people it felt very American centric, mainly because the 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 token reference to Britain at all is when it sort of cuts to the the wire going and it's like what a, we just got word from the Yankees oh what oh if they can down a spacecraft we can bally well do it too and mm. that was the only I'm nod very to the Brits. surprised they weren't eating scones frankly mm. that was Jim Pittock by the way he was in uh, Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater and Best in Show while it might feel very American centric there are elements in there that really kind of encompass the rest of the world sort of a cursory kind of nod to other stuff that happens outside of America uh, to Americans it feels like a lot to everyone outside America it feels like a bit mm, that yeah. makes sense but I think it, it was thrown into quite sharp relief when we started talking about a point of comparison mm-hmm um, because the incredibly inspiring speech mm-hmm. uh, that Pullman gives towards the end mm-hmm. it's it's okay. I know that's the bit that everybody was going nuts over when it first came out, mm-hmm. but it has now been surpassed. Yeah. By Idris Elba's cancelling the, the apocalypse, apocalypse speech which in Pacific Rim. I thought when and I was in the cinema and Sharon thought while she was watching this last Absolutely. Time. And the, the reason for me that that hit so much more substantially is that you really feel in Pacific Rim like this is a world of people who have been forced to come together in a small space Mm. and deal with this problem that is threatening all of them. And the threat in Pacific Rim has taken 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's it's, taken ages. It's built up. You've got a sense of of stakes behind it. You've got a sense of, um, you know, this really is our last chance to sort this out Mm. um, and actually do something about this and kick back against it. Whereas it's like, well... In this particular instance, everything was fine two days ago. Maybe give it another couple of days and everything will sort itself out. Um, give it another couple of days? They were saying like 36 hours and every major city will have been wiped out. That was speculation. Brilliant. They had no hard evidence. No hard evidence. To suggest that that was the way it was So you'd go. have said, wait. No, no, no. I'm not. No, no, no. Within the world of Independence I'm Day, you would saying, have been shot by aliens. I'm not saying I would have said wait. I'm saying that going from an assumption of everything's fine to an assumption of world annihilation within 48 hours seems a little bit. Maybe they put it through premature. that computer in the thing. Yes. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> world <laughs> annihilation in 25,000 hours. Yes. And Pullman is not Idris Elba. And I'm no. sure that is a fact that uh, he is very acutely I don't aware think he's of. He's ever claimed to be. Idris <laughs> well, Elba. indeed. Good morning. Everyone? In less than an hour. Listen up. Aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. Today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. At the edge of our hope. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. At the end of our time. But from annihilation. We're fighting for our right to live. To exist. We have chosen not only to believe in ourselves, but in each other. Today there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. And should we win the day, 
The 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. Today we're going to we face on. the monsters that are at our door. We're going to survive. And bring the fight to them. Today, we Today we are canceling the apocalypse. But no, that I have a problem with the speech in that um, it sounds really great and inspiring, and he's talking about unity. The whole film is about unity. Chipman points out that all of the shots where characters are on their own, that's bad, and they're, they're all isolated, but when they're all together, they're moving in the right direction. Chipman cited that Roland Emmerich is inspired by the idea of the real-life supposed person who was writing all of Shakespeare's plays. Rather than playing them for the gentry, he was putting them out for the proles because it is so much more apropos for affecting social change if you get in at the bottom and... You don't inspire revolution yeah. by preaching to the wealthy masses. So well, this is a big, broad um, sci-fi, fantasy, fun romp. It's also actually got some pretty good uh, morals at its heart, which is that working together, we will succeed. Working aggressively and alone, we will not succeed. Mm -hmm. When they fire off the nuclear missiles, the... Uh, symbol throughout the 20th century of we've got this power, we will use it. It doesn't work. Nothing happens with that. It's it, it's worthless. All of that all of that power amounts to nothing. It's only when they get into fighter jets and do what they did in World War Two that uh, everything succeeds. Like Star Wars as well. But because they had to make it about Independence Day, because that was the uh, day it was going to be launched. They started with let's release a film on the Fourth of July and worked backwards from there. Yeah. Um, the speech is about unity, but he says this is about, you know, we're going to defend ourselves against annihilation. This will no longer be an American holiday. This will be the whole world. And it's like, oh, that's great. Today we celebrate our independence. No, you don't. You celebrate your unity. Independence is the exact opposite of unity. Independence is not being part of mm. the herd. Independence is refusing to be part of the collective. The aliens don't want to make you part of the collective. They just want to take everything you've got. And this is what I mean about the War of the Worlds comparison. It's not about a, a, independence from the aliens. It's about trying not to get wiped out. The British didn't want to wipe the Americans out. They just wanted to tax the shit out of you. <laughs> um, and FYI, mission not accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> your tea got very wet. Um, no, the um, this is what I mean about the War of the Worlds comparison, though, because if they'd had that build-up, if they'd had, you know, the aliens have come along, they're not here to wipe us out, they are, however, here to take over. Like the Kree, for example. If the Kree turned up in, in the Marvel movies and said, right, yeah. you're now part of the Kree Empire, really don't oppose us. Yeah. And the Avengers went, no, we are not going to be part of your empire. That would be a declaration of independence. Yeah, and the fight back at the end of War of the Worlds, that is a fight for independence. That is, you know, we do not want our alien overlords lords to be in charge anymore we are going to throw off this yoke of oppression if it's all happened in 48 hours that's not what's going on here and the, the threat and the language don't tally up and so it just it, there's something a little bit incongruent about that whole setup also like the grammatically it works perfectly to say today we celebrate our independence which even if it doesn't technically work on the actual symbolic scale it's a great thing to say. But instead it's, Today we celebrate our Independence Day. And clap because and Because it's Bill Pullman and he's not Idris Elba and he's not fantastic at delivering great and inspiring speeches. Yep. Admittedly, having said that, this would probably rank in like the top three most inspirational speeches 
to your average American cinema goer. So, you know, your mileage may vary. Sue, any other bad? Lyra doesn't like the effects. Lyra doesn't like this film, period. She uh, she was like, ugh, Independence Day. And she complained the whole way through. Hmm. Grumbled. Okay. And she was like, ugh, I hate CGI. I went, it's not actually CGI. This is model work. And she went, well... I went, okay, what you're complaining about is what you perceive as bad model work. There is one particular scene where you've got the uh, the wide shot of... I'm assuming it's New York. And the mothership coming in from the top right hand corner and it looks like somebody cut a picture out of a magazine and stuck it and on just nudged it sideways yeah. over the thing it just it, I, what is it compositing compositing chroma, chroma whatever technique they were using somebody looked at that and went that's probably the best we can do at this point um, now I don't know whether that would have been resolved in the blu-ray um, but that that felt a little bit uh, what's the word? It threw me out of, of being involved in the film. Bit. This is, folks, the biggest budget at the time, um, 50s B movie that had ever been made. Mm. And it also kickstarted the idea of the summer big event blockbuster movie. Really, up until this point, pre that time, there wasn't that state of let's all turn up and watch New York getting destroyed. No. Uh, and then it was it, let's all go watch the Disney movie. It just had to it just had to hang on for a few years of Armageddon and Deep Impact and uh, Volcano and Godzilla. And then suddenly uh, Roland Emmerich's an odd one for me because I like Independence Day. I really like White House Down. I hate Godzilla. Mm. I hate 10,000 BC. Oh, 10,000 BC. And I hate The Day After Tomorrow. That You know my apocryphal story about why I can't stand Roland Emmerich, right? Why? why? Because uh, apparently... Oh, yes, yes, the mammoths. When, yeah, no, it was the, it was the saber-toothed tiger. When yeah. they were making um, 10,000 BC, the, uh, the designers that were creating um, the saber-toothed tiger made a version that had, like... X number of, of hairs so that the fur looked incredibly realistic. Say 10,000 hairs. Yeah. Um, and then they made another one which had like 5, half hairs. that amount. They took them both to Emmerich. He couldn't tell the difference. So they went with the easier, cheaper, quicker one. Who cares? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Who cares? You're the man at the top, Roland. You're meant to care. That's why you're in charge. It doesn't matter. No, no, nothing in that film was good mm. at all. Um, That's a fair point. But, but it's... all the, the world of cinema had to do was hold on for a few more years. Then 9-11 happened. And then for some reason, the rise of the superhero happened. It was linked with that. Uh, and now they are inextricably linked. The idea of the big disasters are happening in our cities and the superheroes or the Transformers will come down and stop the bad guys from doing the bad things and the aliens from destroying the things. Some property damage will occur. Buildings will fall down. But the day will be mostly saved. And that's why I love the fact that Civil War at least challenges this idea. Um, interestingly, though, just property damage isn't enough now. That uh, San Andreas film came out with The Rock. Mm-hmm. Just watching San Andre- the L.A. fall into the sea isn't interesting enough. If The Rock had been a superhero and had been trying to stop that happening, I think people would have turned up in, on, in droves to mm, see that film. Yeah. Well, the Even if it was rubbish, because, I mean, like, otherwise explain why people keep coming to see the Transformers films. Mm. I think, to a degree, uh, there's much more demand for 
character. And it's not about the disasters anymore. <laughs> but the disasters help. Well, they, they provide the backdrop. They provide the conflict. Yeah. You know, they, they're the what's there for the characters to, um, to kick against and to work out their marital problems um, against. It's not a one-for-one, one, though. Deadpool had very little in the way of massive property damage, and it did better than Thor mm. and Captain America, both of them. Another good thing that, that Independence Day gets really, really right is its characters, the, the, the core ones. And in fact, when I go through the support list as well, and we compare it to Independence Day Resurgence, you go, oh, 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 maybe there was like a really good cast in Independence Day. Because it's a combination of zesty, attractive young actors at the top of their game. And most of them really are, like uh, Jeff Goldblum at peak Goldblum at this point. Will Smith entered the world properly Mm. in this. You know, he had done his Fresh Prince thing. He had been in Six Degrees of Separation. This was the film that launched him into the stratosphere. Mm. And everyone was like, yes, Will Smith. He was a star. He has a perfect balance of entertaining and relatable, which is rare and impossible to just... Simulate. You can't manufacture it. You, you can't. cannot synthesize it because no. people know. If they, if it doesn't, they've got to connect. Hmm. Interestingly, The Rock has it as well mm. in a similar way. When he's, yes. when he's in the right film, because Will Smith's been in bad films as well. Mm. Wild Wild West, doesn't matter how entertaining and relatable you are, Will, you could be in a terrible film. Stay tuned for that one, folks. Mm. Um, but Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. Entertaining and relatable. Yeah, entertaining and relatable. Those, that is something that, which, if you could bottle it, would be the most valuable thing on the planet because it is so marketable. People want to be entertained, but they want to go like, I like that guy. He's just like me. <laughs> or at least he's interesting enough to be around all the time. Yeah. And if you took Will Smith out of Independence Day, big black hole, just vacuum of just something missing. Mm. Independence Day Resurgence. Doesn't have Will Smith. Really doesn't have Will Smith. (laughs) More on that in a second. Can I just say, by the way, I, I know he's like nerd throughout most of the film. Jeff and that's, Goldblum. That's kind of the point. But he's Jeff super Goldblum. hot. The end when he comes out in the flight suit. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. And I like to smoke on his cigar, if you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. And I like Jeff Goldblum. Yeah. I even like him in the fly. I liked it when he was he's going um, you know into a drunken rage and he's smashing the place up and he's like his. His baggy 90s shirt's coming off and he's got a, sort of a, a, a clean vest, but he's sweating underneath. Mm. And, 
Yeah, not the only person to be wearing the, the old baggy shirt and vest combo. Uh, James Duval also does in this. Yes. Was he was he meant to be drunk in that scene? Yeah, he's swinging out of a whiskey bottle. Oh, I, I did see him swinging out of a bottle, but for some reason it never clicked that he was drunk. I just he thought, thought it was, he was Tizer. A, I just thought he was a bit cross. No, he's cross and drunk. Okay. He starts drinking earlier when Bonnie Hunt corners him in the kitchen. Mm. So why are you waiting? Hmm? My social security will expire. You'll still be sitting there. I'm thinking. Yeah, well, think already. Hey, do you have any idea how long it takes for those cups to decompose? If you don't move soon, I'm going to start to decompose. Ah. Listen, David, I've been meaning to talk with you. It's nice that you see me so much now, but... Don't, don't start, Dan. I'm only saying it's been, what, four years? You're still wearing a wedding band? Three years. All right, three, four, you're divorced. Come on, move on. This is not healthy. No, this is not healthy. The smoking is, is not healthy. Checkmate. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This, this, is not, this is not checkmate. See you tomorrow, Paul. No, no, just hold on, this is not checkmate. The other really excellent thing about it is that not only have you got all these great fun stars uh, and you've got a combination of old, young and folks in the middle. Just There's, there's, there's so many and it's got this sort of, you know, quite colourful and there's, you know, you've got uh, your African-American, you've got some Hispanic-American, a lot of white people. <laughs> there is a lot of, there's a lot of white people with guns. Yeah. Adam Baldwin making sure that the people with the guns have the uh, whiteness. Absolutely fine. Yep. Yeah. I had I did notice actually when they did the rousing speech at the end, there's at least three different occasions where they cut from mm. Bill Pullman talking about how, you know, they're gonna rise up and defend themselves to very militia looking guy with an assault rifle up against his shoulder and I was like Ooh. Randy Quaid, who's rarely watchable, was a little too much, but at the same time endearing, so Kind of, you know, especially because you know what happens to him at the end at his, you know, sweet-natured sacrifice. Uh, you kind of put up with his crap throughout the uh, film. And also, as Chipman pointed out, he's a redneck, but he's not racist. There's never any point that, that he mentions that uh, the uh, his uh, his brood of, uh, of various children from at least two marriages of multiple ethnicities. But Independence Day Resurgence... <laughs> Start with the good, Alex. Start with the good. Um, there's a really, really nice, sweet bit near the end where... No, I can't talk about the end. Okay, I'll, I'll save that for later. But it takes, takes too much explaining otherwise. Just, it involves a scarf. Last positive point about um, Independence Day, the original, um, on the character front. Oh, and we'll be going back to it. Okay. Carry on. But... Vivica Fox mm-hmm. is great. Yes, she doesn't she is. get anywhere near enough to do, mm-hmm. but she's fantastic. Mm-hmm. I thought she was awesome. She's in a resurgence. Is she? Yes. Does she get lots to do? No. Gets killed almost immediately. Oh no! Just so that the Will Smith substitute kid can go, my dead family. Is he actually playing the same character? No, the Will Smith son. It's her kid. Oh right, gotcha. 
Dylan Hillen. It's, it's the kid who's, uh, you know, shooting his Nerf gun at the uh, alien spaceship at the mm. beginning. I love that uh, broadcast at the beginning of the first one. You know, please do not fire your uh, small arms at the alien spacecraft. You may trigger an interstellar war. There is a dry sense of humour in this film and some great scripting in the first Independence Day. Mm. There's, you know, it's, it's just two people, uh, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, uh, and it fairly whips back and forth. It's not very, very clever as a film, but it's got enough kind of pep and enough kind of sort of Star Wars style gallows humour and enough kind of Jeff Goldblum asides and enough kind of Will Smith asides, both of which suit them as characters, mm. um, enough to almost feel improvised a lot of the time, and Harry Connick Jr. as well, for it to feel fresh. And every time you watch it, it's, it's great fun. They added three extra writers for this one. They, they thought, Does it show? We want some extra cooks for this broth. It's the, it can only improve, surely. So they added Nicholas Wright, James A. Woods, and James Vanderbilt, who is a professional, by the way. He's done loads of movies before. I don't know what happened. Anyway, so since Will Smith is now gone, he's left an enormous fucking great big hole, and all colour has gone too. You know those blue skies and sort of white rooms and sort of the 90s sort of soft hues and, and walls and carpets and ceilings and, and actually being in rooms as opposed to being in shadows. There are big, huge swathes in the middle of this film where you're looking at two pinpricks that could be the light glimmering off the eyes of one character talking to two pinpricks on the other side of the screen. All humour has gone too. All personality has gone. And all that fun model work has gone as well, replaced by the most generic of CGI. Everything good about the first Independence Day is gone. They've brought back quite a lot of the cast, but they didn't really bring back the characters. And that's what is so depressing about watching this film. Apparently Stephen Hiller is dead. Will Smith's character is just dead. Dead. Dead! And apparently that's... You're dead to me, Will. You're dead, Will Smith. Right. First thing. First thing. If Will Smith won't come back to do the sequel to the film that brought him to the big screen, something's desperately wrong. Either they weren't paying him enough, or he read the script and went, uh... I, I don't know what it was. Could be either. Because he's in Suicide Squad, which surely can't be paying him more than they would have for this. It may have been a combination of the two, though. It may have been like he read the script and went... If I'm going to do this, you're going to pay me lots. But under those circumstances, you pay him lots. You say yes. Maybe it was a contract conflict. I mean, he was filming Suicide Squad. You wait. People... Maybe they didn't want to. First thing I said to... I went when I was in Lush today buying you a bath bomb. I said, I just wanted to see Independence Day too. And they went, oh, is Will Smith in it? No, funny that you ask. That's the thing people remember. Hmm. You failed, Independence Day Resurgence. Before you even started, you failed. You failed, you failed, you failed, you failed, you failed. If you could have brought us something as good as Will Smith, that would have been great. Make sure it's still a person of colour so you're not just going, hey, we got a white guy instead. So, just off the top of my head, Michael B. Jordan from Creed. John Boyega. John Boyega. Um, I mean, he's busy, obviously. Phone ringing off the hook, but... Anthony Mackie. You get no Will Smith, but we do get Jesse T. Usher, who barely registers as a character. He's basically playing his son. And he's like, my dad died, and I'm angry about that. And then his mum dies halfway through when he's, he's trying to rescue... Like, Jasmine uh, has gone from being an exotic dancer to being a medic. 
and uh, she's at a, uh, a high-rise hospital, and she, she's the one who stays behind to make sure that this um, woman who's just had a baby uh, survives. She gets her onto the, uh, her, the, the departing gunship, and then the building falls out from under her, and she falls and dies. Because just having Will Smith dead isn't enough. You've also got to kill Vivica A. Fox. It couldn't be that you could have her doing her medic thing elsewhere and be like, yeah, she's still doing it. Mm-hmm. And now she's doing it, you know, because she's trained for it. And no, you've just got to kill her to motivate one of the heroes. Uh, no, Mae Whitman. Mae Whitman is a young, perfectly aged actress. P- extremely talented. She played Katara. She was in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. And she played the young Patty Patricia Whitmore, the, the, the kid, uh, the president's daughter in the first Independence Day. They didn't get Wet May Whitman back. And there's no friggin' reason why not. I was watching this film and I went, apart from the fact that this girl that they've got, Maika Monroe, is empirically hot. Is she, this is the same character? Same character. So they have recast the character? They've recast her. In the same way as uh, the girl who played Lucy McLean came back to try to be Lucy McLean in Die Hard 4, but they went with Mary Elizabeth Winstead uh, because she was super hot, and the girl who played Lucy McLean is probably a bit more conventionally attractive now, by today's standards. But Mae Whitman is an actress, like, doing her thing. She's not super hot attractive, like, I mean, to her credit... You mean she's not skinny? Because she is a very, very pretty woman. She is. Oh, God, I love Mae Whitman, she's great. Okay. Props to Mae Whitman, whatever you... She was just recently voicing Tinkerbell. And I hate those Tinkerbell things. But that's just how much I like Mae Whitman. But Maika Monroe was in It Follows. She was the lead girl in It Follows. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realise that until I got back. And I was like, oh, okay. She failed to register. Same as all the other young characters in this film. Uh, we get no Bonnie Hunt. She's not even mentioned. But we do get Charlotte Gainsborough. Remember her from Nymphomaniac? Yeah. Oh, I know who Charlotte Gainsborough is. She's uh, like um, a specialist that Jeff Goldblum meets. And she's like, oh, yes, I've been studying the aliens and their uh, residual psychological links with the humans. So she can be there for all of those important bits. And then he carries her along for the ride. There's even a point where uh, he says to this, this guy, why don't you come along since everyone else is to invite themselves along because all the core characters invite themselves along on this trip. Uh, no, Harry Connick Jr., obviously because he died. Um, but we get Nicholas Wright the best friend of the hero, who for some reason refuses to die in flames. So basically, he's the sort of like the the slightly more geeky guy, and like it was just like, when are you gonna die? When are you gonna die? When? So you-? he's he's goose. Yeah, basically. Not fulfilling his gooseness. Yes, not being goose. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, what are you gonna do instead? Nothing. Nothing much in particular. Nothing. Uh, no Mary McDonald, because of course. Laura Rosalind died in the uh, first one, but we do get Sailor Ward as the president. Her, you know her name wasn't Laura Rosalind in Independence Day, right? Okay. Yes. Um, but the, the, what, the first lady in Independence Day, uh, Mrs. Whitmore. But um, yeah, we get uh, Sailor Ward as the president who uh, turns up, says a few things, starts off a few presentations, then the aliens turn up and shoot her. And it's like, well, well that, that was that president then and then uh, Bill Fickner gets sworn in instead I don't know what his role was before we, we get no Adam Baldwin well one presumes the vice president we get no Adam Baldwin but we do get Bill Fickner which is a fair swap uh, there's no Harvey Firestein but we got an orb the orb is pretty good <laughs> I'll tell you about the orb in a bit no Randy Quaid but we got uh, Deoba Opari as Dikembe Mbutu a vengeful African warlord I kind of like the fact that because one of the um, ships downed in Africa... Mm. Or was that the one that we saw everybody cheering at the end of Independence Day? Maybe. I think it's the one that actually... It's the only one that landed. And rather than just crashing, it started to drill. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and uh, then its defences went down and the Africans basically went in and started strip mining it to, to get all of the technology out. So what you basically have is a... They may have thrown it together without realising it, but you've got a proto-Wakanda there. And this guy is basically T'Challa. He wants to avenge his brother who was killed in the attacks. And I was like, can we just have the movie about this guy? Because he's much more interesting than everyone else. <laughs> Quite apart from anything else, he is representative of the earliest stages of man from the cradle of life of Africa up against astonishing levels of technology and a daunting alien godlike presence. So the idea of that being the part of humanity that somehow is able to fight, I mean, that's interesting. But no. He's just sort of in the background, you know, like swearing vengeance on the aliens and then like, you know, uh, he gets machete happy at one or two points. But there's again, there's there's not much use of him as a character. A potentially interesting character wasted. No James Duval, not even a mention of Randy Quaid's family. So you also don't get no Lisa Jacob or Giuseppe Andrews. But we got Daisy, Felix, and Bobby, three lovely, adorable little kids that get to be driven around in a school bus. Uh, no James Rebhorn as Albert Nimziki. That's the uh, I'm not Jewish. Ah, nobody's perfect guy uh but we do get a nerdy government guy uh no david arnold doing the music but we did get harold Closser and someone named and this is absolutely true thomas wanker (laughs) she's very juvenile but you know what but you know what (laughs) sorry that took me by surprise (laughs) thomas wanker uh, but you know what? Uh, if you look on music, uh, music by Howard Closser and Thomas Wanker. Um, Thomas Wanker has gone by the name of Thomas Wanda uh, for this one on the IMDb. It's as Thomas Wanda. Uh, so maybe uh, someone in Britain told him, you do realise what Wanker means in England. There's no Bill Pullman, but we did get a drunk mall Santa. Excellent. A fair swap? No. No. <laughs> No, there, there is Bill Pullman, but he looks like a drunk mall Santa the whole way through. He has been shattered by the experience. He seemed fine at the end of the first film. He's like, oh, Munchkin, we're all going to be okay. He wasn't going to be okay. He was shattered by it. He was just like, he's like making mountains out of his mashed potato and drawing on the walls in his own oh, feces. Oh, God. He just keeps waking up with terrible dreams and like they're going to come back. Surprisingly, Yeah, understandably. Mm. Would have been great to explore that. He's barely in it. Brilliant. He just sort of turns up, staggers in and goes, I've got a warning! And then collapses on stage. Oh, God damn it! And he's played by Nick Nolte. <laughs> but, but, we did get Hemsworth. I was just about to say, I can't help noticing that you haven't mentioned Hemsworth the Younger. But we did yes. get Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth? No. Oh, shit! <laughs> We got Chris Hemsworth's considerably less charismatic, considerably less talented brother, Liam Hemsworth, that for some reason people think is a really good actor. I hate to use the term overrated because I think it's a really contentious term. It suggests that the people who rate something highly are in some way like you should discount their opinions. I will merely say I don't get his appeal. I don't understand why people look at this incredibly boring chap and think he's great. He is great. You know what I like? Liam Hemsworth. He is one of the most boring white actors I have ever seen. I have now decided to rename Johnny Template after this character. It is now Jake Template. Because his name was Jake. What are Jake's flaws? If anything, Jake is too Too good. (laughs) He's too good at bucking authority to save people. He gets into trouble. He gets 
fired oh, for like saving people because goodness. he's just so good at it. Right. Like basically, a, a big moon crane's about to fall on a moon base, and they're like, ah! And then he, Jake Template swoops in and holds back the big moon crane and puts it back into position. And then this, the Chinese general chews him out and goes, how dare you save everyone and uh, disobey orders? You are fired and sent to earth or, or possibly you've got extra time on your blah, 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 whatever. So he gets into trouble for being such an awesome badass. That's his flaw. He has no others. Apart from the fact that he's incredibly boring. He's just this handsome haircut, Looking a bit like Chris Pine, actually, because obviously uh, Chris Pine's father in the original Star Trek is Chris Hemsworth. So there's a family resemblance. So there's an odd kind of like, yeah, (laughs) he's the young Kirk type, bucking authority. But Chris Pine is really charismatic and fun and has great things to say in the Star Trek movies. Mm. Jake has nothing to say or do at all. Also, one of the, the things about Kirk is that he is shafting himself through his behavior. Oh, yeah. You, you can see his potential, but ultimately what he's doing is making sure that nobody will ever take him seriously. Hmm. So he is a, a flawed character. Will Smith in the original Independence Day, one of the first things you find out about him is he might be great at what he does, but he's not getting the thing he no, wants. He really been... wants to be an astronaut and he yeah. keeps getting turned down by NASA. Yeah. Also, I mean, ultimately, it doesn't... Not because he's so awesome and keeps saving people. It almost... If, if you're so awesome and keep saving people, but you're really funny as well, it's kind of okay. If you're really charismatic and charming, and there's something about you that just people like like watching... That I'm sure people will be watching Liam Hemsworth and going, oh, he is, he's fantastic, so magnetic to watch. But I would prefer to see him an actual magnet. Um, <laughs> We do have Jeff Goldblum, but he looks bored. He's bored the whole way through. And there are many times when it's like, why is he actually doing this? Is he just doing this because he was in the first movie? That's what it feels like. Mm. Maybe that's what Will Smith felt when he read the original draft with him in it or something. Maybe Jeff Goldblum has some kind of weird pact with the devil Mm. whereby he is obliged to do sequels to films that have done really well for him. Okay, to explain the relationships, Patty Whitmore, the president's daughter... Patty now works at the White House. Her job is... And um, she... Because, of course, that's how the White House works. Well, I don't know. I'm sure she studied really hard for it. But she's boring as a character. And her boyfriend is Jake. And Jake's living on the moon. Dylan Hiller, son of Steve Hiller, turns up on the moon. And he and Jake immediately have a fight. Because they, they used to be buddies. But then Jake did something really racy during a, uh, a, a training mission and they had to bail out and the plane got broken or something like that. Either way, Dylan's angry at him. So he punches him immediately and mm. Dylan doesn't like him. But Dylan's really super serious all the time. So that's like that story that you hear about Jeff Goldblum and Bill Pullman when they yeah. he punched him yeah. because he done but something he didn't like. There's nothing going on between the two of them. There's Jake being perfect Jake and then there's Dylan being miserable, grim Dylan. Oh, uh, the goose guy, um, I can't remember what his name is, doesn't matter, that friend of Jake, who should have been killed, uh, has got the hots for uh, Rain Lau, who's the daughter of the Chinese general who chewed out Jake. And he's like, oh, I, I really want to ask her out. And he sort of learns a bit of Chinese, st- starts to ask her, and then aliens turn up. So um, I was just waiting for him to die trying to save her, or her to die trying to save him. They both survive, it's fine. So what you end up with is this new generation of alien fighters. You've got 
the one boring white guy, the slightly nerdier boring white guy. You've got the black guy who is fairly nondescript. You've got the Chinese girl and you've got the white girl. Remember that. Okay, the plot is, 20 years after ID4, the world is now a different place. There's been no conflict around the globe. It's a utopia. We've forgotten our differences and we now work together, harnessing alien technology to advance ourselves. We've now got a base on the moon. We have a large defense array set up around the Earth of satellite guns uh, pointing outwards for if ever the aliens come back. We're moving forwards as a species, which was lovely. And I was like, wow, that's fantastic. Because they, but you know, to, 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 to at least acknowledge, oh, hey, it all worked. Because at the end of the, uh, the first film, it's about let's just unite. Let's forget our differences. Now we can unite against a common threat. We can get by. Now, we've done that shit in the past. We united against the Nazis. And guess what's still happening? Well, yes. But ultimately, I, you know, they've kind of pulled back and consolidated behind the guns. When if they're reverse engineering alien technology, could they not maybe do a little bit of more long-range space exploration you know we've seen the moon we know what's there good idea and then the aliens turn up and it sounds like they sent out distress beacon 20 years ago and then this big it's just one enormous spacecraft and it's so huge it's got its own gravity it's so huge it settles over the atlantic which place in the atlantic all of it it's huge and it's big and it's large and it's not small. And then when it comes into the atmosphere, there's lots of fire. To the credit of the marketers of this film, all of that stuff about, oh my God, there's things and buildings falling down on us. Oh my God. I thought that was from the end sequence of the film. That's only from when the spaceship turns up. They actually kept a lot of this film really under wraps and did not show their hand. And had there been anything in the rest of this film worth hiding, that would have been great. But there isn't. And it's really distressing. That there's nothing there. So anyway, they theorise that because um, all the bunch of aliens that were held captive and, and were comatose for 20 years are started going mental, that there's a hive mind. So at the centre of this hive mind of insectoid-style aliens, there's a queen. And the queen looks like, well, it's just sort of like this big spindly jabberwocky type thing with a sort of a, a big, like, fanged jaw and a giant flared head. And it's got these tentacles. It's the alien queen. It is literally the alien queen, only it's beige. It's the fucking alien queen. And its motives are the same as the alien queen, only it drives a spacecraft. And that's the big bad for this movie. And it's a spacecraft that's so huge it covers the Atlantic. And Liam Hemsworth flies in one end and runs into the centre of the Atlantic on foot. Because reasons... Is the Alien Queen voiced by Helen Mirren? Nope. Because that would be awesome. If the Alien Queen was voiced... There was a deep thought, by the way. But if the Alien Queen was voiced by Tress McNeil... Why are you so angry, Mommy? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I'm just a little nervous about my evil plan. You dumb bastards! (laughs) That would have been brilliant. Before this giant spaceship shows up, a smaller spaceship, a sort of an orb turns up on the moon and there have been like pictures of like this orb sort of drawn all over the place and people like equate it with fear and so immediately we as humans shoot the orb and uh people jeff goldblum's going no no no, it might not actually be from their species look at the actual like if nothing else the design of it it's very spherical whereas the other thing was just a big disc and quite aggressive looking this thing looks like it might actually be from a completely different species 
Um, oh, it turns out Jeff Goldblum was right. They didn't listen to him the first time. They didn't listen to him the second time. Let's go to the moon and recover that thing. Turns out to be an orb, a giant orb thing. They bring it back down. Brent Spiner, Mr. Data, wakes up from his coma of 20 years. And um, his buddy is there. I, th- I think you might have noticed him in the background of the uh, the first film. I could be wrong. It could be the same guy. Maybe not. Um, and he's been knitting him a scarf. And this is the bit that relates to the sweet moment. He's been you know, looking after him for 20 years in um, Area 51. And then he wakes up and goes, oh, and then they're like, right, we've got to get you to, and he wanders around in a hospital gown for a while. And then they're like, right, we've got to get you to look at this orb. And then he gets his laser out and then they break into the orb. And there's a smaller orb inside that looks like Marvin the Paranoid Android's head. And it rolls out and then it starts to speak. And it speaks to uh, him and says that, you know, it's a being of higher intelligence and that it's actually connected to the Citadel out of Mass Effect. This giant conglomeration of planets that have all united and they're trying to stave off the advances of these evil aliens, the Reapers, if you will, uh, who are sucking planets dry. What they're trying to do when they drill down, which is what this big thing is here to do, they suck out the molten core, which completely buggers the entire planet, reverses the polarities and all of that bollocks. She comes from a race that has abandoned their biological bodies and is now a synthetic And this is the most fascinating thing in the world for me. So if you really are going to make the second half of your film about this, brilliant. Okay, I'm all aboard. Forget about that. Just fuck it. Just chuck it in the bin for the rest of the film. It's fucking barely mentioned. It's a MacGuffin because the Queen wants to come and kill this bull. That's it. That's all that it's there for. Bearing in mind that our first reaction to this highly advanced being, the moment it turned up, was to shoot it in the face. I propose that its reaction should have been Oh, it's you. It's been a long time. How have you been? I've been really busy being dead. You know, after you murdered me. Okay, look, we both said a lot of things that you're going to regret. But I think we can put our differences behind us. For science. You monster. And I'll be honest, you know what my days used to be like? I just tested. Nobody murdered me. And then you showed up. You dangerous lunatic. It seems kind of silly to point this out, since you're running around plotting to destroy me. But I'd say we're done testing. Should that not have been the point? We failed the test. That's like the Vulcans turning up and us shooting them in the face. That's like finding the plans for the mass relays on Mars, building it, going to the Citadel, and going, What do you mean you haven't got any fucking chips? I'll come here on a spaceship! Before proceeding to tear the Citadel apart and abuse the alien children, because it's okay, they're foreigners. We failed! But it didn't talk like GLaDOS. And there's no humour going on there. And it's telling us the most mind-blowing shit ever. And Brent Spiner's right there with his Star Trek association to say, look, we can advance our species with this. And I was like, yes, now we can do this. No, we can't, because let's go back to the five fucking boring kids. The five fucking kids who fly in to find the Queen. There's an airstrike again. Like, lots of things are in flames. There's monuments coming down. They do an airstrike which doesn't work. Then they do an airstrike which does work. 
Same as the first film. Um, but the second time, Bill Pullman goes in. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker! And, like, blows himself up in front of the Queen. And then we never talk about Bill Pullman again for the next 30 minutes of the movie. He's dead. He is fucking dead. But the Queen had a shield, so it's fine. Although he completely wastes his life and is unsung, even by his own daughter. Nobody mentions that he blew himself up for no reason. Then the Queen gets out, gets into her giant exoskeleton, and she's huge. She's fucking Godzilla huge. She's a kaiju. So she's storming across the Mojave Desert to try try to find them and the person that she's actually chasing is Julius Levinson I never mentioned this David's father is still alive he's trying to you know sell his books to old people and uh, then he ends up in a fishing boat there's a big disaster he somehow survives these three kids pick him up he then ends up ferrying a lot of kids in a school bus and somehow he goes to try and find David in the Mojave Desert which is where Area 51 is and so he's perfectly placed to be chased by the queen and she's stomping across the desert blah 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 and then the boring kids turn up and they're sort of flying around the place and up and down and down da, 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 and she breaks in to get the orb now i was thinking like humans working in conjunction with this higher form of alien intelligence to do something amazing nope doesn't matter it's just a big ball that the queen picks up she never speaks or says anything otherwise of- oh you survived that's interesting i guess i should have factored in your weight Look at you, sailing through the air majestically, like an eagle, piloting a blimp. Nothing happens. The Queen's got the ball, and then uh, this whirlwind of ships flying around the place. Does she make it past the 30-yard line? Yes. This is the important question. And then she's running away, and then Liam Hemsworth and his crew come in, and they fly up, and then they fly down, and then they're, like, dive-bombing her, and she goes, Yeah! And then they show... Like, Liam Hemsworth shouts, Shoot her on the back! That's where her weak spot is! And I was just... I, I was the only person in the cinema who just, like, put this enormous, like, hands flung up, and I was sort of a, Huh? Oh, I just got that because I made that up! Just... Go for the back, it's where the weak spot is of the massive damage. And they do that, and he's right, and then she comes flopping out. Obviously was reading a walkthrough. And she is killed uh, horribly and executed. And, um... But they had one... I mean, the whole fighting the Queen thing, I was just thinking, right, okay, so you got the white jock guy, you got the white nerdy guy, you got the nondescript black guy, you got the white girl, you got the Chinese girl. Get into your dino zords, combine to form Megazord, and fight this Queen! We're just talking about the Power Rangers here, but probably more boring than the Power Rangers were! I've never liked Power Rangers at all anyway, but I'll warrant I'll find them more interesting than this, than this next generation that we have passed the alien fighting stick to these boring clods of characters there's nothing going on here but they've got one more thing <sighs> aside from the fact that they've got the uppy, uppy downy doomsday machine from man of steel and transformers for that up and then smash down again at the very very end this sphere talks to brent spiner again i guess somebody is going to have to repair it no it's okay i'll do that too I've got a surprise for you after this next test. Not a fake, tragic surprise like last time. A real surprise with tragic consequences. And real confetti this time. The good stuff. Our last bag. Part of me's going to miss it. But at the end of the day, it was just taking up space. And, um, says, and he says, Oh, 
you've we've saved the sphere and she's so happy she looks like deep thought she's got a thing across her face she's so happy with us that her entire species say that they want humanity to be to lead our resistance against these evil aliens we'll call them the scrolls shall we the 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 scrolls we've got we've got to destroy the scrolls and we've got to spearhead that and so someone says oh but they're going to come back and they'll destroy us and he goes well we we take the fight to them let's kick some alien ass That's when I started crying a little bit. Not floods, but just when I got up, I was like, I'm getting teary. Why? Am I, am I sort of uh, you know, overcome with emotion at this moment? Um, and then I realized, no, it's because we've made contact with intelligent alien life and another form of intelligent alien life that is aggressive. And we have the whole universe opened up to us. We've finally made that point of contact in Mass Effect or Star Trek, that first contact, that key moment for humanity. And it's about expanding our our culture and unifying with the other cultures to achieve greater ends, to become more than what we are. And it's everything good about Star Trek, so obviously Brent Spiner saying it is very significant, and it's it's everything good about the best kind of sci-fi. And it's building towards utopia, and it's about unity. But the message being conveyed was, let's go and fucking kill some fucking aliens because we're the best. Humanity is the best and everyone knows it. Which is the message from the Transformers films, which is from the diseased mind of halfwits. It is an aggressive, hateful message and they completely fucking buggered the most important aspect of moving forwards as a culture in terms of sci-fi. And it is the, it is basically like opening your mouth to protest and then they slip a turd in. Oh! And then you're like, oh, uh, and you're choking on turd. And, uh, and you don't know where to put it, so you, you're like, put your head around and you just, just drop it into your popcorn bucket. Because that turd, and like you go, and you're trying to wipe the turd off your mouth, but it's still there and you've had turd in your mouth. And that is Independence Day Resurgence, folks. An unexpected turd in the mouth. You said you liked me doing my food parallels. <laughs> well, that's it. That's not a food parallel. I oh. didn't love the original Independence Day, but I really, really like it now for what it gets right. And I really, really hate its sequel. It achieves so little that's positive. The only nice thing is that Brent Spiner's mate, the buddy who made him the scarf, gets, you know, is killed and is slowly dying in his arms. And it's, they're just these sort of tertiary sideline characters, much like um, uh, McTavish and Pines. But there's this camaraderie between them, almost a, a romantic relationship, which is so sweet that, you know, he's like, oh, that, that scarf I made you was supposed to be a sweater. I die. Um, and Brent Spiner's really getting emotional about it. And like, oh, okay, that was a really nice moment. And I don't know whether that was put in at the last minute or something, or if it was always in the script. But it's a nice moment in just a series of bland, uneventful, pointless... And if you watch the trailer, they've got that sort of procession of cars driving through the desert. It's actually in Africa, uh, with their lights on. That's a a shot, like, the the camera pans sideways. That's straight out of a Transformers movie. That's what they've taken their cues from. Mm. The Transformers movies. Those are some of the worst blockbusters in recent memory. Everyone involved in this film should be thoroughly ashamed of themselves. There's nothing good about this film. Ugh. So just to be clear, 
You didn't like it then? I did not. I did not. The first film has a real sense of hope to it. A real sense of coming back from the brink. And in, in fact, um, the idea of sort of everybody, you know, clubbing together and, and actually striking back against a common enemy, it feels more like World War Z than the shittily handled World War Z movie felt, which was very much a sort of like, it, it, it may be the World War Z that's happening, but let's make sure we follow Brad Pitt because he's the important one. And it's just, he's the avatar in your window for going to all these different places and experiencing six different action sequences. It's it's tedious in extremis, and it, it, a, a dreadful disservice to an incredibly dense and rich novel, which was painstakingly researched. Such respect for Max Brooks, and complete waste of time, that film. Um, so yeah, Independence Day felt like that kind of clubbing together thing. It has, in effect, along with World War Z, informed upon my own writing, even if it's, it's taking something... The, the whole idea of focusing on the president and the White House and what they're doing, and ultimately the, you know, the, the trying to reform America, it's, it's a big deal. And this film does not feel like an event. It feels like a cash grab. A happening, if you will. Well, it, it looks more like, well, it's been 20 years since we did ID4. Do you want to do another one? Let's see who'll come back for it. It was supposed to be the passing of the torch from the old to the young, from the previous generation. Like, basically, if Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum had been there, you know, 20 years is, is long enough time for, for there to have been... You're suggesting Goldblum may, have been, uh, Goldblum may have been there in body, but he wasn't there in spirit. No, I mean, like, both of them. Yeah. And, you know, a sense of actual progression in the world it felt like the hope had been stamped out of this world despite the fact that it's a nicer place that this utopia it's an alternate history now and there's going to be a sequel and they're going to shoot more aliens it felt it felt very halo in a kind of a cheap kind of well we've seen what halo looks like when they were on the alien ship and they're running around and there's aliens shooting at them Um, But, I mean, Jake Template is such... There's no character on display here. Fail. Fail. This is a bigger fail than the recent Ninja Turtles movie, the first one. In contrast, Out of the Shadows is a success, a rousing success in contrast. Even Jurassic World had things going for it. Just in terms of recapturing what was memorable about the original turtles cartoon it's not complex it's not great but it does what it was supposed to you know chipman did what we always hope to do which is to take a popcorn film that everyone just passes off as you know trash and find something more going on beneath its surface but i will be very intrigued to see if he can find anything below the surface of this one i'm just trying to remember if there's anything else in it no Harvey Firestein. Really missed him. He's great fun in the first one. There's so much, so much little business bits going on. This is something I haven't mentioned, actually. Remember in the first one where Eric Avery, the chief of SETI, comes in? He's just been told about the, uh, the signals coming from outer space. He's just been woken up and he's like, this better be a beautiful blonde or I'm hanging up. And then comes in and he's like, that what's with the golf you're gonna kill me just little things are happening to suggest that people are people 
In this, everybody turns up and explains who they are, what they've been doing for 20 years, what situation they're in. That's it. No flavour or character besides that. You know that bit in Heroes where it's like, As you know, your father was mo- one of the most brilliant genetic scientists of all time. And, and he died, died yesterday. That bit is one of the worst written lines ever because it's so manifestly explaining to the audience what they need to know. Every line in Independence Day Resurgence is that line. Everyone turns up. Which gives you the feeling then that those characters basically don't exist, that they were written purely to have this adventure. Yeah. Yeah. There's no sense of they existed before this started. They will continue to exist after this is done with. That, by the way, is another really, really good string to the bow of the Marvel Universe. No one ever really thinks about it, but there is a genuine feeling that the Marvel Universe is running parallel to our own, the way that the movies sort of keep up with our timeline. There's a sense of progression, and and the characters sort of weave in and out. It feels like they're real. I mean, quite apart from the fact that they're vibrant and interesting and fun to spend time with, and you look forward to going back and meeting them again. Oh, Uh, I'm sorry to keep harping on about Marvel movies, but they just do it right. And Obviously, I'm going to notice the script, because all I do is write scripts morning, noon, and night, and then direct them and get people to sort of deliver on them. And I have to make everything tight and work out, if I said this out loud, would it sound stupid? And I don't know how, if it's in the script, it's in the film, still works. (laughs) President Whitman's daughter talking to Liam Hemsworth on the video phone going... Oh, you fought with what's-his-face before, and, um, you know it's because you're angry at him because of the that-that, and, well, he's angry at me because of the that-that. Anybody got that? Okay. Moving on. It's just... It's just that. So what you're Did you look at the is, ha- there's a couple in their early 20s who are capable of cutting straight to the emotional core of each other's situations. Yeah. Here's how you do it, folks. So-and-so's coming to the base. It... Well, that's just made my day. Look, I gotta go. And then he goes, and then she looks at the picture that she then looks at in the film, which is of all three of them together, and that picture tells you everything you need to know. But they've already told you everything you need to know in words, so then you get a thousand words, and then you get a picture painting the same thousand words. Just... Too much. That's what happens when you get five people writing a script and nobody with any imagination. My God. My God. I suppose you should just be grateful that they didn't tell you five times. It's so boring as well. There were so many times when I was looking at my watch in the dark and trying to work out how many minutes left of this. I want this to be over. Oh. So, yeah. In summation, this is a catastrophic failure. I wish they wouldn't make a third. Probably going to make a third. I think it will depend very heavily on box office. Hmm. If, this, if this tanks, they've got no reason to make a third. Well, it won't tank. It's, it's released on Independence Day. People will go and see Independence Day on Independence Day rather than staying home and watching Independence Day. You get what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Upgrade to Blu-ray today. That's all I'll say. Oh, they, the trope of, like, we'll kill the Queen and then everything dies is in there as well. Now, that's in the Avengers as well. And Joss Whedon admits it's a shitty thing. But basically, the Queen dies, 
all the planes fly out of the sky and crash down onto the ground, all the alien planes, the bad ones, but the big flying saucers, saucer gets recalled back to its home planet rather than just crashing down onto the Atlantic. And splashing all the water out. Yeah. So basically, the queen dies and everything's great. That's There's nothing to have to deal with after that. That's the first movie though, isn't it? They, they take out the mothership and yep. that. But, but that's the thing. They take out the mothership and all the ships fall to earth and let's not think too hard about what they crash down on. In this, all the planes fall to earth and the one big ship just flies back home again. I have to go now. My, My planet, planet needs, needs me. me. <laughs> that's what it looks like, folks. Because mm. if that one crashes, then we have tidal waves to deal with. Although, frankly, if it's got its own gravity, they'd have had tidal waves to deal with anyway. Yeah. Whole thing would have buggered the whole... The gravity of the Earth. It would have destroyed the moon as well. It just goes straight through the moon. But, um... And that would have buggered our gravity. But I think they... I think originally it was going to destroy the moon. But then somebody mentioned that that would bugger the Earth really properly. And the tides wouldn't work. So they decided against destroying the moon just for spectacle. So let's destroy London instead. Much better. Oy. Anyway... The original Independence Day, incredibly eminently quotable. Pretty much everything Will Smith says loud is memorable. Just, you know, oh no, you did not shoot that green shit at me. (laughs) Just when he's dragging that alien through the desert and just getting really, really angry with it and kicking it. Just punching the alien and saying, welcome to Earth. Just really anxious to get up there and whoop E.T.'s ass. Just, oh, oh, just want me to leave this thing with you. You know, just... Guess who's coming coming to dinner? Just, um, I've got to get me one of these. Just uh, Jeff Goldblum's, forget Fat Lady, you're obsessed with Fat Lady. Just so many great little lines which are memorable and quotable. There isn't a single line in this film that I recall. You know, this was supposed to be my weekend off. But no, you got me out here dragging your heavy ass through the burning desert. With your dreadlocks sticking out the back of my parachute. You gotta come down here with an attitude. Hacking all big and bad. And what the hell is that smell? I could have been at a barbecue! But I ain't mad. It's all right. That is all right. It's quite... It's quite reassuring, actually, that my brain is eternal sunshining of the spotless minding this whole film, merely hours after watching it. So bland. An exercise in generic filmmaking. Shame on you, Roland Emmerich. We know you're capable of more. White House down. Folks, in fact, yeah, don't pay to go and see this. If you've already got Independence Day on Blu-ray, get hold of White House down. It's the best Die Hard movie since Die Hard 3. If you did find hidden meaning in Independence Day Resurgence, be sure to tell us on the forum. Mm. Oh, there is one bit I forgot at the end, which is where, uh, it's near the middle end, where Bill Fickner tries to give the Independence Day speech in the first one, sort of, but he's Bill Fickner, and uh, I think he realises how crap the film is. Uh, but the, the, <laughs> the general gist is, we, America, are about to make this final push. You, the rest of the world... Whatever colour, whatever creed you are, we ask that you pray for us. Right, you made two errors there. (laughs) Firstly, 
completely fundamentally missing the whole aspect of unity of the first one, where it was everybody all fighting, not just the Americans. Secondly, if you believe in the power of prayer, then this is reversed, because everyone in the world, you know, all sort of got together and prayed to their individual gods. And, uh, and because their individual gods all agreed with them and made it happen, the Americans were able to beat the alien queen. And I realize how silly it is to say that right now out loud. But if you don't believe in that aspect of religion, or you specifically believe that the power of prayer is important for positive state of mind, but that action is far, far more important than mere statement of intention and imploring of invisible deities to make sure that fate hangs in the correct balance. So, you know, for example, um, praying for the victims of gun violence rather than actually lobbying to prevent guns falling into the wrong hands, if that violates perceived constitutional rights. But entirely aside from everyone who believes in prayer, what about all the agnostics? What about all the atheists? What about the people who don't necessarily believe in God and especially don't believe in God since 20 years ago a bunch of aliens turned up and tried to kill them? And now they're back again and murdering billions, which suggests either that these space aliens are beyond God's infallible jurisdiction, or if they're not, he doesn't like us very much. If you put it like that, the rest of the world did absolutely fuck all to help the Americans to beat the alien queen. So whichever way you slice it, it's a fucked up ending. Either Americans are brilliant and God's chosen people, or God doesn't exist and it doesn't matter what the rest of the world does. So I'm a little ranty here today. Kind of probably important for us to explain. It has been the worst week in the worst year on record, folks. 2016 can eat a bag of flaming dicks. Somebody said on Twitter, I mean, I've been on Twitter all weekend. Um, somebody said on Twitter that uh, their friend had said that David Bowie was the glue that held the earth together. And that was silly back when Bowie died. But now, uh, maybe, actually, because basically the moment he left, chaos, disharmony, and murder. Uh, yeah, we're talking about uh, the, the, the Brexit fiasco, which I'm hoping, you know, we'll look back on this, uh, this podcast and go, remember when we were scared that everything was going to go to shit? Uh, but uh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty terrible for us right now in England. It's, it sucks. It royally sucks. And the fact that Nigel Farage actually fucking invoked Independence Day when giving his victory speech. Yay, we're out of the European Union. We declare our independence. I mean, as John Oliver said, that speech was about declaring independence from us. Here's a little thing, Nigel, you disgusting, racist, incompetent piece of shit. America was able to declare independence from the United Kingdom and then grow their own food and provide for themselves. It was hard fucking living, but there was plenty of land, there were plenty of resources, there were plenty of jobs going round. But the only time Britain was great was when we'd conquered the living fuck out of half the world. What we're going to do, Nigel, in our newfound independent state? Oh, and one thing the Founding Fathers had when they declared independence, a plan, a long-term plan for America. Without cooperation, without unity of some kind, without 
agreeing with our neighbours on some things to allow us to give them what they need and them to give us what we need, we can't provide for ourselves. We haven't ever had to provide for this level of population. You fucking idiot! But it's uh, as with the fact that uh, Agent Carter got cancelled the same week as uh, Civil War, we had to watch Peggy Carter die twice. We got two shitty Independence Days in one week. And beyond a joke, frankly. What is a joke, however, is when Donald Trump... Let's, let's end on a high note. When Donald Trump came to Scotland the day after, and uh, he was basically there to promote his golf course, wasn't he? This is basically a beautiful green area of Scotland which uh, Trump had turned into a golf course, so the locals fucking hate him. This is his tweet. Just arrived in Scotland. Place is going wild over the vote. They took their country back, just like we will take America back. No games. He then went on to play a game of golf. Uh, with Rupert Murdoch, the uh, the guy behind the Sun newspaper, who uh, deliberately disseminated misinformation to imply to the Brexit Leave voters that they would be getting something that they actually wouldn't be getting. Namely, that this was about immigration and the NHS, and it absolutely wasn't. It was about trade. And they didn't know that. So yeah, Trump was playing golf with Rupert Murdoch, and there were no mines on the golf course. There was no enormous alligator. But either way, the gist of that tweet is, I am now in the country that just voted to leave, and they're really, really happy. A, you're in Scotland. B, the Scots don't like you. C, the Scots are all pissed off at the Leave vote because it fucks them. They had no say in it. They were given the choice to leave us a couple of years ago. They decided to stay. And this is their repayment for that. This is our solidarity. A lot of them, given the choice, would stay with Europe and not us. And I completely understand why. And to prove not only A, how much the Scots don't like you, B, how fucking funny the Scots are, I'm going to read some of the things they said about Trump. Nearly all the responses he got were a variation on Scotland voted to remain yet tet. Buttplug face. Toupaid fuck trumpet. Bloviating fleshbag. Weapons grade plum. Weasel headed fuck nugget. Clueless numpty. Cockwomble. Cockwomble! Cockwomble. If you don't know what a womble is, folks, Google it. Uh, don't Google cockwomble, though. I, I can't. No, nope, no. Nope. Trump. Shit spackled Muppet fart. Bollock chinned spunk bubble. Mangled apricot hell beast. That might be my favourite. Witless fucking cocksplat. Incomprehensible jizz trumpet. Ignorant fuck Muppet. Another masterwork. Tangerine ball bag. And, no, my new favourite, tiny... <coughs> He's very touchy about the size of his hands. Tiny-fingered, Cheeto-faced, ferret-wearing, shit-gibbon. And here is a genuine Scotsman, James Carter of Gameburst, to give you an idea of exactly what it would have been like down on the golf course that fateful morning for a Scotsman. Here he comes with his 
Butt plug face like a toupee fuck trumpet. Roll and ruin the golf course, what a bloviating flesh bag. We all a charmy, a weapons grade plum. Honestly, this clueless numpty's got boot as much sense as your average cockwomble. Aye, alright, Donald, you shit spackled muppet fart. Imagine a bollock chin spunk bubble coming at you like some mangled apricot hell beast. Aye, right you are, Donald, dangling yourself in front of your yes men like Del Monte's tangerine ball bag. Sit doing you tiny fingered, cheeto faced, ferret wearing shit gibbon. Oh, bless you, Scotland. Please don't leave us because of what we did. Oh, dear. You're the only ones that can save us now, I think. Yeah, Jesus. Anyway, so, um, uh, you know, what we Brits tend to do is drink tea and grumble and this sort of thing blows over. We survived a blitz, we'll survive this. So we're going to be okay, but it may be fucking miserable and there may be lots of job losses. Um, and everybody isn't going to be yeah. The country may end up coming out of it fine, but yeah. uh, somebody actually cited their, uh, again, possibly a little bit apocryphal, but uh, their 73-year-old mother who had apparently voted for Remain, um, but uh, some of the members of her lunch group genuinely thought that voting leave meant voting for the immigrants to leave. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Um, there was also the lie that it would, uh, uh, that the money that we give to Europe would all be funneled pound for pound into the NHS instead, which was a lie. A colossal lie from a great big fat racist liar. Basically, the, the folks at the Mail and the Sun uh, are only now finding out through this big list of what, the, what these papers are now saying. Okay, now here's actually what this means. They go, what? This is not what we voted for? No, it's, it's really not. There's a large, large list of bad shit that's going to happen. Massive job losses, depreciation of the pound. Three trillion dollars erased from global stock markets in just a few days. We lost our prime minister and now they have to work out who's going to be the new prime minister and most likely who's going to be the new reigning party. And whoever it is has to basically organise hundreds of new reams of legislation with Europe on top of actually just being prime minister. So they've got six times the job that David Cameron couldn't do. And I forgot, because the minority of foul racists feel like everyone who voted out is in the same bed as them, and that this somehow validates their racial hatred, they're now empowered. So you're now getting a 57% rise, that's remarkably specific, in reported hate crimes. Uh, So that means that the worst people in the world, the worst people in the world, people who like Nazis and Nazism, now feel like they're validated. Most Brits will be sick to death of hearing all this sort of stuff by now, and for that I apologise, guys. Uh, This is mainly to sort of highlight things for Americans who might not be getting all the facts. I do suggest you read up on it or uh, just watch John Oliver on YouTube. He is very, very good at making situations that are very complex, much clearer and often blackly hilarious. One thing that's genuinely tragic about this is uh, there was a Labour MP uh, named Joe Cox who uh, a couple of days ago was murdered, um, shot with a shotgun and stabbed uh, by a man who then went on to say uh, officially for the record that his name was Death to Traitors, Freedom for Britain. And one of the things that Nigel Farage rather unwisely said on the Leave victory was, we won without any shots being fired. Wow. That's insensitive even for a known ignoramus. 
What's scary right now for us in Britain is that the wrong people are very happy about this. There are some people who are happy, a lot of people have mixed feelings, and a lot of people who are very, very unhappy. But the only people who seem to be really happy about this, kind of despicable, like the worst human beings. Because ultimately they're taking their own personal reasons for being happy, they're weighing it up against everybody else's reasons to be terrified, and angry, and sad, and grieving, effectively. And when they're happy, worry. Because something is wrong with the world. And in the list of good stuff... <laughs> butt plug face, two paid funk trumpet blood. <laughs> it's basically just the funny things people are saying on Twitter. The gallows humour from the British public. That's the only good thing, folks. Everything else is bad. Everything else is bad. Fuck you, 2016. Fuck you. Oh, silver lining. Most likely the British public are also aghast with what happened that no one's going to go see Independence Day 2. Which, by the way, has scenes of London being torn to shreds. So... To shreds, you say. Yeah. Okay, so, silver lining, I suppose. In conclusion, I apologise for the sound issues with this episode. Uh, it's teething problems with recording in a completely different way. I also apologise for the ranting. Didn't realise this was going to explode. But when we started the recording, when we reviewed Independence Day 2, the referendum hadn't happened, and now it has. So just kind of wanted to get a lot of stuff off our chest and let you guys know how we were doing. The message from this episode, if you're going to take one and something positive uh, do something nice for somebody today especially if they are from a country that is not your own you know even if it's just holding the door for someone or smiling for someone or just showing that you consider them to be a person who is worthwhile because in england america anywhere in the world they're going to be feeling more like outsiders now and so is everybody doesn't matter where they're from everybody's stressed to the max and worried and if they're not worried, they should at least understand why everybody else is worried. The only way to get through this stuff is together. Because, you know, Trump might get in. And in, in which case, we're going to need to be strong as all hell to uh, to not just curl up and die. So yeah, the, the way you combat uh, hate and ignorance and bigotry is to be informed and kind and determined and strong. Even if you just don't have the energy for that, or if your family's being torn apart by the fact that grandma voted leave and no one really wants to talk to her. Oh, and if you're looking for some sort of escapism to a uh, world which is better than this one, listen to New Century. Right now, The Princess Thieves is just warming up. We're at episode three, and um, yeah, people love it, which is reassuring. That is the fastest one of my stories so far to have people immediately say, yes, I like this. You've got me. So if you want to be gotten, Princess Thieves. <clears throat> and if you're looking for a single mindset to focus on just to get through the day, kindness. They assembled in the back lot and Robin kept them out of view of the street as the Akka emerged from the building, cradling a girl now missing a tooth. A tall boy stepped up eye to eye with Robin, and shouted. What are you doing? Why did you do that? We're sorry, that wasn't how it was supposed to go. But we're freeing you. 
Now we have to move. What do you mean freeing us? That was our home. They fed us. Now where are we supposed to go? Hands up who wants a job. An actual job. Even the tall boy put his hand up at this. Right then, stop your yapping and follow us. Quick and quiet. Oh, like that was. Oh, don't start. And move down this way. Are you all right, girl? Yes. Thank you, Biggin. <laughs> a biggin. Uh, I'm keeping that one. What's your name? Lavinia. Well, I'm Robin Hood, and that's Little John. But he's big. Yes, I, I, I know. That's the joke. It's British understatement. I'm Latvian. I don't get it, and I'm British. I'm calling you Biggin. Here, kid. Have a dolly. For me? Thank you. Hey, how come she gets a doll? You want a doll? No, but have you got a cup and ball or a stick and hoop? Look, we're not Father Christmas here. We just had a spare doll. Uh, you can have this door handle to play with. What am I supposed to do with this? Hey, Alchemy gets a door handle. Shut all of your cake holes or we'll drop you off at the next factory and there will be no dolls or door handles for anyone. I've never eaten cake in my life. Shh. Me neither. Shush. My grandmother used to make such wonderful honey cake. My grandmother was a good cook too. Oh, all of you, shut your gruel holes. That's more like it. And there I think we shall leave it. All right then. Next week, The Thing. Since we're on that whole hostile alien thing, may as well do The Thing. Live for you. Not that thing, the other thing. Not that thing. Put the thing on the other thing and save the universe. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out.
One thing I never really mentioned was that uh, when President Thomas Whitmore is with uh, his wife, uh, Marilyn Whitmore, played by Mary McDonnell, um, who Battlestar Galactica fans will know as uh, Laura Roslin, didn't really get to me that much in 1996. You know, I'd seen a whole bunch of people die in soap opera style ways, but, you know, now somehow with an appropriately aged wife and child, that scene really comes across as genuine. You know, we've seen millions apparently die in an entertaining firestorm, but this one little personal death suddenly takes on so much more gravity and is so much more frightening. It's rather than overplaying the melodrama and the fact that you don't actually see her die, they're just embracing... Oh. Well played, Roland Emmerich. <laughs>